I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. Ecclesiastes 7, 13, 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God should come out from both of them. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would uh, indeed send your spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word in Christ's name. Amen. When we were looking at the earlier verses of Ecclesiastes here, we, we said that the protection of wisdom, we learn, is like the protection of money. It can bring stability in a time of adversity. It can bring... Uh, Stability at a time of security. It can protect us from the hard realities of life. Wisdom is kind of food for our soul. In fact, it's even more in verse 12 of chapter 7. We read, wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. King James says, wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Uh, Godly wisdom gives us a better life. It gives us a a more abundant life. It gives us a, a higher Life, And so, it's no surprise, given the value of this godly wisdom, that Solomon, in verse 13, turns our attention Godward. Now, God's name has not appeared for more than 20 verses. And now we are told to consider the works of God, to see the works of God. We need to observe the works of God. If we're going to live wisely, we will need to view life and all its ups and downs from God's perspective. See, living wisely, beloved, just doesn't happen. It just doesn't naturally happen. It's one thing to be told the value of wisdom, and and I can stand up here and I do that, and I say live wisely, but it's quite another to actually be able to pull it off, to actually do it. And the reason living wisely is not so easily accomplished is because life itself is just not that easy. Life is not easy to navigate. It's not neat. It's not tidy. Things don't always go as planned. It becomes messy life. And when we get in the thick of it, in the midst of life, we we can kind of lose our way. We lose our perspective. We begin seeing everything that is going on around us We're observing that, we're caught up in that, and we're not seeing the works of God. You know, um, my children wouldn't know this, but when I was in college, I was very organized. And they don't recognize the organized dad, but I was very organized. I was a methodical student. 
Uh, I, I had my days all spelled out for me, everything, down to the minute, as it were, where I would be eating, at what time I'd be eating, when class was supposed to happen. Obviously, they scheduled that for you, and then I'd schedule everything around it, when I was going to study, when I was going to uh, just be able to hang out with my friends. I would come back to my dorm room where my desk was, and I would have the room all clean. Everything would be in its proper place, everything on its desk in its proper area. Living like that can be wise. However, I found that when anything was out of place and didn't go as planned, and I couldn't get here or there because of whatever reason, or I came back to my room and it was a mess, I couldn't study. I was unable to study. If my schedule was altered at all by some unexpected or unplanned event, I had a very hard time getting my focus back in order to keep moving on in my plan. And if the distractions were bad enough, I would either just try harder and probably be very offensive along the way trying to stick with it, or I would just give up. I'd rip up my to-do list and say, I hope it goes better tomorrow. Well, see, following the path of wisdom can be much like this. We have a desire to live wisely. We have it all planned out. And if it works out this way and things go that way, we're okay and we'll be able to navigate life wisely. However, life isn't that predictable. Things are often turned upside down. The goalposts, as the saying goes, are often moved in the middle of the game. We're thrown out of kilter. We, we get all discombobulated. I thought I made up that word. It's actually a word. But we get all discombobulated. We, we get confused. We don't know what to do. And when that happens, Solomon knows what can happen to us spiritually, that we can lose our way. We could be tempted to just give up and begin to play the part of the fool. And so he asks us in the midst of that to consider the works of God. Now, this brings us back, considering the works of God, brings us back to an earlier discussion in Ecclesiastes on the providence of God. God's providence, we learned, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, is God's almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all its creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things. They don't come by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God knows the end from the beginning. We have to remember and stand firm in that theology. He is absolutely sovereign. Even a sparrow does not fall without the will of the Father in heaven. All things are ordained by God. And so Solomon asks, who can make straight what he, what God, has made crooked? God has appointed both the good and the bad. One writer put it this way, our life follows the arrow of time from birth to the future, but it's not always a perfectly straight line. It's crooked at points. And when Solomon talks about something crooked, he's not talking about something that may be immoral, morally out of line, as if God could ever be the author of that. Instead, he's talking about some trouble or difficulty in life we wish we can change, but we cannot. These crooked things were ordained by God. That's the point he's making. And so there is no way of fighting them. 
See, Solomon's saying to us, wisdom recognizes that these difficulties, these trials, these ups and downs of life come from God, and he's saying basically, get in line. That's why the Living Bible paraphrases verse 13. See the way God does things and fall in line. Don't fight the facts of nature. This isn't a fatalism uh, uh, where, uh, where, you know, it just happens and we can't do anything about it. This is a, a yielding to the will of the sovereign God. If God has made something crooked, it will be crooked. And if he desires to make it straight, then it'll be straightened out. And so we must stop fighting against God's sovereign will. See, we need to come to grips with the all too real fact that there are days of prosperity and there are days of adversity and that God has appointed both of those. We, we like the first one, the prosperity days, and we praise God for that. Um, look at verse 14, though. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We don't know what's coming. One day our hearts are filled with joy and, 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 and prosperity in our lives, and the next day a tragedy hits us like a Mack truck. And there's nothing in this world we can do about it. And, and here's the kicker. Often there's just no explanation for it. There's no explanation. There's no rhyme or reason. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Verse 15, Solomon says, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Solomon is a realist. He's honest about life. He's honest about what he sees, and what he sees just doesn't seem right. The righteous suffer while the wicked are prospering. Christians are not immune to injuries or being hurt by disasters. And, and, and something like that doesn't sit well with us. It's the exact opposite of what we would expect in a world that is governed by a sovereign but also a good and righteous God. The righteous people are the ones who ought to rejoice. They're the ones that also be prospering or should be prospering. While the wicked, they're the ones that should be suffering and, and, and be facing this adversity. And, and, and yet, that's not what happens. In fact, Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the, way, the ears of the wicked will be shortened. Now, that seems right to us. We like that one, but that isn't always the way it is. Uh, rather, we see the opposite, and we don't like it. We don't understand it, and it, it, it causes us to get our eyes off of the works of God. See, we like things cut and dry, black and white. We like simple answers about simple things that are not always easily found. We can't find those answers. Why does a missionary who commits their whole life to God, to serving God, die young while a thief lives a long and prosperous life? Why? Why does a good and godly person, oh, we're all sinners, but a good and godly person hear this horrific news that they got cancer while the worldly and wicked person dies in old age? Why? 
See, there's no easy answers to these questions despite our tendency to want to simplify. I had a friend uh, years ago that lost his father. His father was a carpenter, a construction worker, actually a roofer, and he was on the roof and he fell off the roof. And he died suddenly. And he was struggling. And he talked to different people. And some Christians, I'm sure they meant well, but some Christians said, well, he committed this sin and therefore this happened to him. Now, there is nothing biblical about that. Nothing. I mean, Jesus makes that clear. Righteous people suffer sometimes. And sometimes the unrighteous get to celebrate. Sometimes the righteous die and sometimes the unrighteous live. And so any attempt that we make in order to sort these things out so we have the answers we want to find cause and effect uh, uh, is only going to drive us crazy. Sometimes they're there. If you get drunk and get behind the wheel and get in an accident, there's a little cause and effect there. But not always. And sometimes somebody gets drunk, gets behind the wheel, gets in an accident, they're fine. And the innocent person's the one who dies. We just don't know. The psalmist understood this. See, see, when you, when you struggle with life's issues and, and you're, or even understanding God, the psalms are a great place to go because they wrestle with these things too. Um, and we read in Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death when I, and their bodies are fat and sleek. That would have been a compliment back then. They're, they're, <laughs> they, don't say that to me now. It won't be. <laughs> they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Proudly, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Here I am living a righteous life, trying uh, in the power that God gives me to live for him, and I just keep suffering and suffering while this unrighteous person just seems to prosper. Uh, all in vain have I kept my heart clean, he says. That's the psalmist. That's in the Bible. Trying to find a satisfying answer to adversity in life will only cause you more pain. That's how he ends it. It was too painful for me. Everything seems upside down in this fallen world. Everything seems random. It's, it seems that fate, not God, is in control. And see, when we observe or participate in these painful experiences, when they hit us hard, when we do right and can't seem to make ends meet, 
even though we're doing the right thing, and yet the wicked do wrong and they're living large, or when we get the diagnosis that, uh, uh, that we have this disease that we didn't want to hear, when we lose the one we love the most, when life just seems downright unfair, evil, and, and we are angry at the world, we, we are tempted at that point to look in two different directions. This is the gist of what Solomon is saying. In the midst of all that, we can be tempted to think God is punishing us, and so what we do is try to be more righteous, try harder to be more righteous, or that's one temptation. Or we could be tempted to give up the Christian faith in life and say, who cares? I might as well live ungodly. It's that extreme fight or flight response, and that's what Solomon addresses in verses 17 and 16. When we see bad things happening to righteous people, we should try harder to please God, or, or, or should we just throw in the tower? And Solomon says, look at the answer, verse 16, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, this is difficult to understand because if you read them on the surface, it seems that Solomon is saying, don't be too righteous. I mean, don't, you, know, you don't want to go that route or, or it'll take all the fun out of life. And on the other hand, don't be too wicked because, well, you'll just get yourself in trouble and then that won't be fun either. Uh, just play it safe. Is that what he's saying? Well, the answer is obviously no to that. Sounds like that, but that can't be it. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it's not as if God says, well, a, lick, a little wickedness I can tolerate. It's okay with me. He's the thrice holy God. He's not going to tolerate that. Um, God hates all sin. And so that would be the wrong interpretation. A better interpretation is that Solomon's saying, do not be self-righteous and self-wise. That is, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are more righteous than you are and more wise than you are. In fact, Solomon will go on to say in verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so here's the point. You're not as righteous as you think you are. I mean, when your comparison may be your neighbor. But when your comparison is Jesus, you're, righteous, you're not as righteous as you think you are. And don't think that if you try harder, if you fight harder in your own strength, you'll become more righteous, and therefore God will have to concede to you, and you'll force God to prolong your life and make you prosperous. That's what he's saying. If you fight harder in your own strength, you'll become more righteous and then God has to accept you. No. And so the issue in verse 16 is, is self-righteousness that believes it can force God's hand to straighten what is crooked. That I can take this into my hands and I can manipulate God as in magic or witchcraft of some kind with my righteousness to force him to make this better. And then we get to verse 17. It's the counterpart. Solomon is not saying be moderately wicked. He's saying do not indulge sin. We have enough wickedness in our life uh, to your soul without giving yourself over to it completely. Phil Riken says when it comes to sin, even a little is too much. Rather, Solomon's point is there's a great danger in giving ourselves over to evil. 
It it, it is one thing that you sin, by the way. You do sin and you'll commit sin from time to time as everyone does. That's what Solomon said in verse 20. We all sin. But there is a world of difference between committing the occasional sin and then also, on the other hand, making a deliberate decision to pursue a lifestyle of sin and, and, and deception and lust and greed. And Solomon's saying, don't be a fool. If you live in sin, you will perish. Basically, these verses are teaching us don't deceive yourself and don't indulge yourself. That's where kind of my illustration, I know it's not perfect, but it fits, where my illustration from college days ties in. When life threw me for a loop and things didn't go as planned, either I tried harder to make it right so I could get back on track, or I just said, who cares, and gave up. Um, And and so I neither tried harder or gave up, or I gave into the interruption, And, and neither response worked, and so there are two dangers. One is the temptation for a religious person. Don't think that self-righteousness will make the crooked thing straight. And, and one's the temptation for the non-religious person. Unrighteousness is not the answer. Both lead to destruction. That's why he says, why should you destroy yourself? And, and they may lead to death. That's why he says, why should you die before your time? And so Solomon says, it is good that you should take hold of this. Understand that, and from that, withhold not your hand. In other words, grasp that this is a reality. Grasp the dangers of self-righteousness, and never let go of your conviction about the evilness of sin. The wise person walks the path between two extremes there, shunning self-righteousness, by not, but also not allowing one's native wickedness to run its course, to take over. And so... When the righteous suffer, and you see that, and an unrighteous prosper, when you're faced with the unanswerable issues of adversity and trouble and struggle, when life is crooked and all you want is just to straighten it out but can't, be aware that you don't respond by trying to manipulate God to prosper you or prolong your life through self-righteousness. I mean, we all, we have all that tendency we pray, and if I, if I just do this, Lord, can you do that? Um, as if we're bargaining with God. And, and at the other end, we don't say, well, it's all up to fate. Who cares? Just throw in the towel and indulge sin. I might as well enjoy it. On the other hand, if God does not exist and it just doesn't matter how you live, as if that's the truth, that's what you're doing. Neither response is correct. Neither response will get you out of danger. Neither, neither response will make straight to crooked. And there's a way to avoid both of these dangers. And the answer is found in verse 18. Live in the fear of God. Look there. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. See, verse 18 balances the warning. We should take hold of true righteousness and should not withdraw from the battle against sin. And the way to do that is to walk in the fear of God. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Come out from both of what? From both of those temptations, both of those two extremes, self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Now, the fear of God here is not terror. We know that of punishment from some uh, distant deity. Rather, it's the holy, loving fear of a child for a father who knows and loves him. 
It, it, it's, it, it's to revere God. You've heard that. It's to be all of God. It's to know that he is God and you are not God. He is in control. It is to hold him in awe and, and in his majestic beauty. It's to have respect for his mighty and awesome power and his wisdom for the things that he brought into your life. And so when we fear God, we submit to his timing, even when it doesn't go our way. When we fear God, we submit to his will. When we fear God, we submit to his plan. When we fear God, we will not be so self-righteous. When we fear God, we'll not want to indulge in sin because we know that he is the thrice holy God. When we fear God, we find the answers to all of those problems because we trust in his sovereignty. It doesn't mean that you say, well, this came into my life and don't try to fix it. I don't have any money. I guess that's what God wants. No, you try to get a job. That's not the point. It's trying to change what you cannot change. Remember the psalm I quoted earlier, Psalm 73? The psalmist, when he said, but when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He couldn't take it. But he does go on to say something. He says this, until. It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. What the psalmist is saying here is that when I enter the sanctuary, I am confronted with the reality of God and reminded that he has a sovereign plan for his covenant people. He's saying, outside, I'm going through all these problems. He's not saying you have to get, once you walk in through the doors, okay, now it's better. He's saying that now I'm confronted with the reality of God. And whenever I'm confronted with the reality of God, I realize that his plan is good. I realize that his plan is loving. And I realize that his plan will indeed lead to life, even if I cannot see it now. Even the crooked parts of his plan will someday be straightened out. All in his perfect time. And that's what the psalmist understood. You know, Solomon mentioned the crooked parts back in chapter 1. We confronted them already. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. It's almost identical to here in chapter 7. But there is one major difference, and you probably picked up on it. He mentions God here. He didn't mention God there. The first time Solomon said this, he left God out of the picture, and his conclusion was, all is meaningless. But here, he brings God back into the picture, and he's looking at the world according to God, at the, the world according to God. He's putting both the straight paths and the crooked things in life under his divine sovereignty. He's able to handle it because he knows he has a loving, heavenly Father above him who's controlling all things. And when you truly fear our heavenly Father, that is what you'll do. You'll trust him with the crooked things. You don't have to like it. I mean, it's not like he's saying here, you know, your life's terrible. Just be happy. He's saying, Lord, I I mean, I can understand, Lord, I don't understand this. Until I enter the presence of God and I'm just reminded, Lord, that you are loving, that you are all-powerful, that, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you care and you know what is best for your children. That's what Paul said, that all things, crooked or straight, good or bad, will work together for your salvation. That's the goal. By the way, when you're counseling somebody in the midst of just... Uh, you know, horrendous things that happen in this world or just go on in their life, they probably, if they're a Christian, know that verse. 
So walking in and just quoting that is not going to save the day. That's the goal, though. And you can bring it up. It's the Word of God. You should bring it up. But there's this idea that as long as I quote this scripture to you automatically, magically, woo, now, I, now that's going to work out good. I, I'm glad I lost my job and my house and half my family, like Job. No, that's not the point. But it'll work together the good. What you want to do is get to that point where you can say, even this, even this is good. That is the only wise response to submit to his will. In closing, let me add just one more thing. When this becomes difficult, and by the way, it does. I mean, I, uh, there are things that I have a hard time handling, and they're not real serious uh, compared to what people are going through. When this becomes difficult, and so I know it's tempting to want to change your situation. You want to, you want to change it. Remember, not long ago, I, I quoted Dr. Boyce. He, he stood before the congregation when he was diagnosed with cancer, and, and people were giving him all the remedies, and, and he tried them. Nothing wrong with that. That's the point. But then he asked this question to the congregation. If God does something in your life, would you change it? And it's a fitting question here. Would you change your disability? Would you change your disease? Would you change your job, your finances? Would you change your appearance, your abilities, your situation in life? Or would you trust God with all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight? He may do this in a lifetime. He may cure you of cancer. He may do all those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But would you change it? Because if you did, Dr. Boyce said, it would be worse. If you could just change it apart from God is the point. As Phil Riken says, you see, but whenever you are having trouble believing that God knows what he's doing, the first thing you should do is consider the work of our Savior. Consider that our Savior had to, be, to bear the crookedness of life a crook that came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father that, was there any way to make Calvary straight instead of crooked? But there was no other way. And so as Jesus considered the work of God himself, he could see that the only way he was going to be able to make atonement for the sins of his people was to die. And so he suffered the crooked cross. That was his God-given cross. God gave it to him to bear. And he trusted his father, waiting for him to straighten that which was crooked when he raised him three days later. And see, here it is. If God could make straight the crookedness of the cross, then surely Surely he can be trusted to do something with their crooked things in your life. Surely. And so consider the works of God. Consider how he loved you by sending his son to die on the, that crooked cross. Consider how he saved you from uh, a spiritual death and destruction. Consider how he blessed you with that hope of salvation. Consider that your suffering Savior in times of adversity, that he can identify now with your weaknesses. Replace your self-righteousness with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Die to sin knowing that he died to free you from it. Indeed, fear God. That is the answer in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear these words. Even as the sermon began, we know 
what we are to do. The problem is doing it, and so we ask for your Holy Spirit to enable us that when we face adversity, when things don't go as planned, when we're ready to give up, or when we're ready to try to manipulate you, help us wisely to consider all that you have done for us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.